Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. Gotta say, we've got this really great episode lined up for you today, and it comes by way of this guest. His name is Michael Fox who is this Australian who made a major life change not too long ago where he decided to give up meat. And he's going to get into some of the reasons for this. But the point is here is that he went all in, all into the point where he actually co-founded a business which provides a meat alternative. And we're going to learn all about that business, plus a lot of the learnings along the way you know, some of the takeaways he's had from running this operation. And I would like to throw in there too, that I mean, he's been within the world of entrepreneurship for quite some time. And you're going to hear about some of his past experiences as well. So if you're into entrepreneurship, this is an episode you are not going to want to miss. So again, I do encourage you to tune in for this one if you're into entrepreneurship. And hey, if you're not, I think there's a lot within this episode that you're still going to be able to take away and gain some terrific insights on. So let me more formally introduce you to him and we can get started. Michael Fox grew up as a meat-loving Australian. In 2015, he became vegetarian and is now vegan for health, environmental, and ethical reasons. After a 10-year stint riding the startup roller coaster as co-founder and CEO of fashion tech startup Shoes of Prey, in 2019, Michael co-founded Fable Food Company to help people reduce their meat consumption. Teaming up with the fine dining chef mushroom scientist Jim Fuller, Michael and the team at Fable developed delicious meaty food made from mushrooms and all-natural, minimally processed, plant-based ingredients. Launching in December 2019 in partnership with the three Michelin star British chef Heston Blumenthal, Fable products are now available in Australia, the US, UK, Canada, Singapore, and Japan at over 500 restaurants and cafes and through the meal kit subscription companies Marley Spoon and Gusto. So with all this noted, 
Here's my conversation with Michael Fox. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Michael? Yeah, good. Thanks, Christopher. Yeah, yourself? Yeah, excellent. Really looking forward to this conversation. Got this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And it's a segment where I just try to add some zest to some otherwise dry definitions of what the guest is involved with. And uh, I put you down here for entrepreneur. And we'll be honest with you. I mean, I've covered quite a few entrepreneurs on this program already. And what's always interesting about this is I read off a similar or almost the same definition each and every time. But the take on it is almost always different. So I'm really looking forward to hear what you've got to say in terms of entrepreneur. So let me just read that out for you and then you can comment. Does that sound okay? Cool. Sounds great. All right. So here we go. Entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is an individual who creates and or invests in one or more businesses, bearing most of the risks and enjoying most of the rewards. The process of setting up a business is known as entrepreneurship. The entrepreneur is commonly seen as an innovator, a source of new ideas, goods, services, and businesses or procedures. There it is, short and sweet. First take, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I think the one thing it maybe doesn't capture is the kind of level of commitment and passion that you've kind of really got to have to be successful as an entrepreneur. Like I've, I've had jobs where I've worked for other people and um, you know, it's good to have passion and everything else there, but it's you don't necessarily need it to the same level because your whole existence financially and everything else isn't kind of reliant on completely on your own performance. Obviously, you can get fired if you're doing a poor job and stuff like that, but yeah. but you've got a lot of structure and other people and things around you. There's other people who are kind of thinking of the strategy and the plan and everything. But as an entrepreneur, you are like solely responsible to yourself and yeah, you've got to got to really go into it solidly and have yeah passion for what you're doing and be really committed to what you're doing or yeah you're going to struggle yeah yeah no i like that i think that comes up in each and every book on entrepreneurship is that whole chapter on passion and it, it's there for a reason for all the reasons that you just outlined probably going to get into this later on the conversation but was there any particular moments in your journey where you had to kind of draw on that through a difficult time lots like yeah just probably just about every week and some like more so than others but yeah it's like I would describe it as like like I worked for Google, for example, for a few years in an advertising sales role, and I'd describe that as a nice kind of good, solid, but you know, a few little ups and downs along the way. Whereas entrepreneurship yeah. is like a roller coaster. The highs are super high, and the lows are devastatingly low. Yeah, I've been through many of both of those. Yeah, yeah, probably a lot of those just managing those emotions and trying to stay as level within your mind <laughs> in those moments. But yeah, an incredible challenge, no doubt. Yeah. Are there any distinctive elements in terms of your business that you're involved in right now as far as, you know, food and cuisine as it relates to this definition of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. In our case, we're trying to be, like we've got a really strong mission. We want to help end industrial animal agriculture. and. We do that by making delicious food out of mushrooms, help make it easy for people to transition away from eating meat. So we've got a kind of disruptive element to what we're doing in, in our business. And yeah, I guess a disruptive element as an entrepreneur, we're trying to yeah, trying to help end industrial animal agriculture. So kind of change an in industry. So yeah, that's probably in our specific case, that's kind of an extra element that we have to entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to do that, uh, you know, trying to do something different, not, not always, but in a lot of cases, trying to do something different and disrupt an industry change something ideally for the better. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it would depend as well on where that, I don't know, that that market, the maturity of the market that you're within, how much disruption has already taken place there? What are consumers 
ready for or accepting or already familiar with, or are you starting something from, from the ground up? And in that case, yeah, that, that probably requires a whole different level of commitment and getting back to that notion of passion as well to really dig down deep in some of the trying times, I would assume. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Yep. Okay. Well, maybe we could slide into this other segment, A Day in the Life, and maybe we could hear a little bit more about your activities in terms of your role within Fable Foods, the company that you're running right now. Yeah, it's pretty varied. There's probably been a few stages in the in the business. We're kind of five years into the journey. So early on, it was like it was me and my co-founders, and that was it. So, and I was kind of doing the business side. They were kind of doing the technical product development side. But even then, I was getting pretty involved in the product development from a consumer research and insights piece. So early on, my days involved a bit of everything, like from the legal side of registering a company and setting that up to Doing, spending a lot of time with consumers, doing customer interviews and research to understand how they bought products in the category through to product development and trying to understand more about the science and the culinary side of mushrooms, how we could take mushrooms and turn them into really delicious food through to, okay, well, where are we going to source lots of mushrooms at scale? What's going to be the strategy there? So if we want to scale the business and have a big impact through to where are we going to manufacture the products back to some legal work around IP and patents and how can we protect what we've developed through to selling to customers who are our first customers get a B, through to yeah, B2B customers selling into restaurants and retailers, and then understanding the end consumer. The, the, and so it was super varied early on. Now as the business has matured and we're like we're matured, it's still early. We're, we're about 20 people. We've got now strong leaders in different areas. So I don't, I'm not necessarily spending my time as broadly as I was before. I've still got to be across. Yeah, it's still in the CEO role, so I've got to be broadly across everything. But like we've got a really strong COO, CFO, for example, so he covers off a lot of the manufacturing and uh, legal side that that I might have done before. So now I'm putting more of my time and energy into sales. So working with our sales team, experimenting with different ways of prospecting to new kind of restaurant customers, and doing that in the UK, the US, and Australia, the, the three main markets that we're focused on looking at different ways we can use sort of our CRM tools, different ways we can prospect and reach out to customers. Like today, uh, a couple of days ago, I was sort of chatting to one of the team. We had the idea, well, let's do, instead of just doing kind of cold email reach outs, let's try and, that might be a little bit boring. Let's We've got a lot of research and insights on what pe- restaurants can be doing better with the plant-based sections of their menus. So today, like I recorded, scripted and recorded a sort of short three-minute video for a sort of 150-door Mexican restaurant chain in the United States kind of mapping out what they're doing well on the plant-based section of their menu, what they're not doing well, where they've got some areas for improvement based on our research and insights and and how we might be able to help them improve that. So yeah, kind of recorded a short video on Loom showing their their uh, menu and 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 sharing all those insights. So yeah, that's kind of how things have evolved for me. But the, my days are still pretty, yeah, still pretty varied. Last year I was, we're fundraising, raised another round of funding. So a lot of my year, a lot of my days last year was spent pitching investors and a lot, yeah, a lot of travel with that. Did like 400 investor pitches um, in, in, the, in wow. the year, as well as some customer sales. So yeah, it's still varied, which yeah, suits me. And I, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something that comes up typically on this program, people wearing several different hats and, you know, it can create some stress, obviously some pressure along the way, but also a lot of reward as well, because you're just constantly finding yourself in these different, respo- having these different responsibilities, which keeps yeah. you, you know, looking for fresh perspectives on things. Yeah. It's the monotony that kills people, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. the mundane, essentially. Yeah. There's some people who that monotony suits and who like the monotony and there's good roles for, yeah, for those people. We need people like that in the world. 
but for me and uh, yeah, probably not too many in the world of entrepreneurship. No, no, definitely not, not in the world. Not, of not of too many successful no, ones. Entre- <laughs> if you, <laughs> you know. want uh, monotony on the same day every day, do not be. An- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slightly different world there yeah, for you. Yeah. Another question too, in terms of like your role right now, or at least present day, you know, what you're just explaining there in terms of the sales, sales development side, is that something that you're doing, obviously like out of necessity, I mean, the whole lifeblood of business is sales, but is that something that you personally as well would naturally gravitate towards? Is that something that's always been an interest for you? Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, my skill set is broad and shallow, but if there's one area that I maybe go a little bit deep on where I'm probably strongest, it's probably in sales. And I think I've always been drawn to that and gravitated towards that. I did an advertising sales role at Google for a couple of years. I worked at a big retailer and probably the parts of that job that I liked most was on the floor in the retailer, sort of managing a store and then, and then but actually on the floor selling to customers. So I think that's even selling to investors, raising funding is a bit of a sales process. So I think I do enjoy that. Yeah. Well, I would like to slide in this other segment here, a pathways one. And here the aim is just to illustrate how people made their way into the profession, into their business. And as noted at the top, entrepreneurship, it's been a big part of your professional development, part of your life for quite some time now. But I'd like to rewind a little bit. I mean, what pulled you into that world in the first place? Were you somebody who in your youth was reflective enough to understand or to think that maybe that type of world would be appealing to you? Or did you sort of... I don't know, stumble into it. Yeah, it's a good question. A few years ago, my grandma sort of said to me, yeah, it's like no surprise you became an entrepreneur. And she had some stories from when I was a kid trying to yeah, get her to do uh, these like, I could see in her backyard, these this native tree in Australia, poinciana tree, and the seeds would drop on the ground and the little poinciana trees would grow. And I knew they were like nurseries uh, where you could go buy plants. So as like a four-year-old, I was trying to get my grandma to grow all these poinciana plants, sell them to her neighbors, and then give me the money, <laughs> basically just delegate all of the all of the work to her starting the business. So, <laughs> so she would say that, uh, she, or yeah, she did say that, yeah, it's kind of no surprise that you kind of went down that path. You sort of always had that bent. I was probably not necessarily aware of that. Like I remember finishing high school and I thought I, I liked debating at high school. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll become a lawyer. So I went and studied commerce and law at university and didn't really, hadn't really gelled that there was this path of being an entrepreneur. But then probably the things I enjoyed most at university was getting involved in like the clubs and societies. And it doesn't sound very entrepreneurial, but I was president of the University Law Students Association and it had a very entrepreneurial bent to it. We put together this like discount card for all the nightclubs and bars and places and we sold, what did we sell? Uh, 10,000 of them for $10 each kind of the first week of uni. So we kind of like a hundred hundred thousand dollars, which yeah, I'm old. So that's probably inflation is probably worth double that now. And then that gave us all this money that we could go spend on parties for the year. So I think I had this entrepreneurial bent with without necessarily being conscious of what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Do you recall at that time, like, I, I mean, those are, those are incredible sums at, at probably at that age as well. I mean, did, well, I'm assuming that's opening up your world, opening your mind to like all the other possibilities. Yeah. Was that a moment right there for you? Yeah. That did spark the idea of, oh, could I turn this into a business? So then I had to go at starting that as a business sort of a couple of years later, uh, which didn't, didn't work out, but, but yeah, yeah, it did spark a bunch of thoughts. Yeah. But then still I went and had a sort of normal career for five or so years before I threw myself into entrepreneurship full time. Okay. What would you say pulled you into it at that point? Like you said, you'd worked at Google for a little while, maybe had a few other stops in there as well. I'm not sure, but what pulled you at that moment into? Yeah. So I worked briefly as a lawyer, realized very quickly I didn't enjoy being a lawyer. So I got out of that pretty fast. 
yeah, went to a retailer, did a couple of years there, really enjoyed that. But then went, yeah, went to Google, did advertising sales. This was sort of 2007 to 2009. So it was early-ish days for Google, certainly in Australia. The office and the team was small. So it was kind of an entrepreneurial sort of big, big tech startup, but still sort of tech startup kind of culture and vibe back then. And so that I found really exciting and engaging. And then, yeah, kind of two and a half years into working at Google, the kind of global financial crisis hit. Google, you know, understandably in hindsight, kind of tightened their belts and and a whole bunch of things. And I remember sort of being at work thinking, oh, you know, it was Google was winning all these awards for being the best company in the world to work for. And I was like, I'm working at the best company in the world to work for, and I'm not that happy and not loving it. And I feel like I'm a bit stuck, like my boss they introduced all these new levels and rungs in the promotional hierarchy. And my boss was like five levels ahead of me. And it was a minimum of two years, no matter how well he performed for each rung before he could get promoted. So I was like, it's going to take me 10 years to be in my boss's role. What my boss is doing doesn't even look that interesting. And this is the best company in the world to work for. Maybe I need to go and start a company myself. So that's probably what kind of triggered it. And then, yeah, I'd always sort of had a bit of that bent uh, in hindsight. So yeah, went looking for something to start. Yeah. Okay. Well, this might be a nice point to, uh, to to get into present day here. And I've got another segment of Q&A discovery and kind of continue this back and forth. But as far as your latest venture, Fable Food, you know, seemingly some of this interest, you know, as I mentioned off the top was, you know, due to your own personal choices of around food and whatnot changing in terms of meat consumption. And you also note some of these personal reasons being connected up to health, environmental and ethical issues. But what I'd kind of like to know is what drove you to build a business off, you know, healthier eating, you know, plant-based eating. Certainly at that time, probably there, there was no shortage of businesses that were starting to evolve or come into the market. Like what made you want to not only change your own personal habits, but build a business off of that as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm vegan for kind of yeah, ethical, environmental health, pandemic prevention, kind of all the normal reasons. And I had been one of those annoying vegans trying to convince everyone around me to turn vegan. And I think in seven <laughs> years, I've managed to convince three people uh, to work for <laughs> Fable, which probably doesn't really count. And the third I caught up with the other day and he's back eating meat. So I'm a pretty terrible activist, um, but I could see out of all this. We'll, we'll cut this portion out of the, uh, the podcast here. It's, it's not going to serve, uh, serve your, your sales skills. Yeah, my sales skills are pretty poor on the vegan front. But I could see that uh, I could see people like get the reasons why, and they do want to reduce their meat consumption. It's just hard because meat tastes great, and I didn't give up meat because I don't like the taste of meat. Like quite the opposite, it was really hard to give it up. Yeah, uh, and it's hard to stay vegan because uh, you know it's, I grew up eating a huge amount of beef. Grew up in Queensland, which is like Australia's equivalent to Texas, and ate a lot of meat as a kid. Yeah, it's, it was hard to give up. So realized, yeah, if you can, and there was Beyond and Impossible and others that were kind of just sort of taking off around the time uh, we started Fable and could see that, yeah, if you give people the taste and texture of meat, make it out of something other than animals, that's kind of the a better route than trying to convince people to turn vegan. And it's kind of, yeah, a form of sort of conscious capitalism, I guess. Like capitalism has some flaws, but it's also an incredible way to organize people and resources uh, to work towards some objective. And so, yeah, rather than trying to do the very difficult task of convincing people to turn vegan, just leverage capitalism, give them what they want, which is something that tastes meaty and delicious and try to make products that taste better than meat and are cheaper than meat. And then it doesn't matter if it's it's just a bonus that it's healthier and better for the environment, more ethical and everything else. 
In what ways did you think your offering could be disruptive in that space, at least initially? Yeah, so I'm a pretty healthy eater. So my wife and I live on 41 acres on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia, and we grow a lot of our own food, bake sourdough, brew kombucha, eat a very minimally processed whole food-based diet. And I wanted to develop a meat alternative that aligned with that diet. So didn't want to use sort of heavily processed ingredients or artificial ingredients. Wanted to do something really natural, healthy, and whole food-based that kind of aligned with how I eat. And so started exploring different base ingredients that could be used and got onto the idea of using mushrooms as a base ingredient. So shiitake mushrooms or button mushrooms, portobello mushrooms, kind of mushrooms that we kind of buy and eat from the store. And they're very healthy and have a lot of those meaty umami flavors in them naturally. So once I sort of got onto that path, kind of realized, yeah, we can do do a product that's really naturally healthy and also delicious that makes it easy for people to reduce their meat consumption. That's, yeah, quite differentiated in the market and there was no one else really going down that space so we had the all the kind of ip we could lock up a lot of the key ip around there key supply chain pieces and build some defensibility in it and um yeah okay and since that time have you had like a lot of entrants in that space that are trying to to mimic or copy certain elements of that business i would assume yeah not so much there are a bunch of companies doing mycelium which is another part of fungi so the way fungi grows in nature, the body of the fungi actually grows in the soil or the wood, depending on depending on the species of fungi. And that body of the fungi is the mycelium. So it's like these thin strands that grow through the wood and the soil. That's actually the body of the fungi. And then when the fungi is ready to propagate and spread its spores, it grows a mushroom. So the mushroom is the fruiting body of the fungi, kind of like the apple, whereas the apple tree is the, the body. So there's a lot of companies growing food out of the mycelium. So Humans wouldn't normally eat the mycelium because it's growing in the wood or the soil, but these companies are taking that mycelium and then growing it in big stainless steel tanks in sort of liquid substrates and turning that into food. So they're using fungi. There's quite a few companies doing that, maybe eight or 10 that are decently funded around the world. So it's related to what we're doing, but it is quite different. We use the fruiting body of the fungi that sort of humans have eaten for tens of thousands of years. And there's really not many startups. Uh, There's a couple of really small ones, but no other well-funded ones using mushrooms as the base ingredient. Oh, really? Okay. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So in, in the five years of what, launching, you probably had a couple of years of research as well on top of that yeah. and still not of a, a lot of action around that. Yeah, exactly. Huh. We've been able to lock up a lot of the IP around that. I mean, it's. I, I question why people haven't done that. Either we are really stupid and people are seeing things that, <laughs> that we aren't and not going down this path uh, or, yeah, or we're kind of onto something and for some reason no one else is kind of decide to go down that path. And yeah, to be fair, now it will be difficult for others to to follow. Yeah, they'll have to do it in a very different way. Awesome. Well, in researching for this talk, I did come across this other article, you know, and this is kind of good diving into your past. And you wrote or you put something together for medium.com, some of your learnings from this roller coaster of a ride that is what you quoted it as shoes of prey, your past big venture, basically. And for listener context as well, this was a business that you grew over the course of 10 years from nothing, zero employees, into a 200-person enterprise, acquired significant VC funding, secured major production, distribution deals, and prepped to scale into the hundreds of millions of revenue. It's big. But ultimately, things didn't evolve the way that you'd wanted it to go. And in this article, you're quoted as stating your biggest takeaway from this was if I ever find myself in a position where I'm attempting to change consumer behavior, I'll ensure I've peeled back the layers to truly understand the psychology of my target customer. So here's my question. You know, it's centered on fable food once again, which is also ostensibly built upon changing consumer behavior. So how have you applied the lessons of shoes of prey to, to as you say, peel back the layers of, again, truly understanding your 
target consumer better now? Yeah, so spent a lot more time talking to customers and really trying to understand consumer behavior. To be fair, probably still could be doing that better and doing more of that. We kind of probably wasted a year uh, where we kind of thought we had figured out that and then we've come back over the last 12 months and gotten back onto the consumer research path again. So even sometimes I'm not learning my own lesson as well as uh, we should have. But so as an example of where we've applied that, like early on with Fable, I would uh, go before we kind of launched, you know, I had this hunch, well, I, I wanted to do a meat alternative that was natural, healthy and whole food based. That that was sort of the the how I shopped and how what I wanted to do. But I really wanted to go and validate that consumers like I, was I the only person who wanted to do that. So I would I'd spend go and spend a lot of time in in uh, grocery stores and just watch consumers shopping the plant-based section, see which items they would pick up off the shelf that kind of turn the back of the pack, look at it, maybe put that one back on the shelf, get another one, put that back on the shelf, pick up another one and then put that in their shopping basket. And then I would I would watch all of that and then creepily go up to them and ask them, oh, what, you know, why didn't you buy, I was watching you, why didn't you buy those ones? Why did you buy this one? They would, uh, yeah, invariably like be really happy to talk to you. It was quite a surprise. Every, everyone was like happy to have a chat about it. Yeah. And I could see that probably about half the customers shopping the segment were looking at the ingredient deck and wanting to pick uh, like products with ingredients that they knew and understood and that were, you know, didn't have sort of artificial numbers and things like that in the ingredient deck. So that kind of validated the my my own shopping mm. behavior and the sort of path I wanted to go down. So it kind of yeah, told me I wasn't I wasn't just going to be producing a product that I was going to be the only person eating it. So yeah, did a lot more of that. Whereas in Shoes of Prey, we probably didn't do enough of that kind of uh, research. Yeah. Okay. I think it's an interesting point. I think within entrepreneurship, like you invest so much of your time, effort, and energy in building this business. Any entrepreneur does, of course. And at different points, I think along the way, a lot of entrepreneurs, they want to certainly validate their ideas, but how they do it or what they're looking for to validate those ideas, sometimes it's based on you know sound knowledge, sound research itself. And other times it's just kind of like seeing what you want to see, hearing what you want to hear. Yeah. And I think it's a big point. I'm not, I'm not implying that that's what you did, but I think it's, it, it's a something for a lot of potential entrepreneurs to hear, or it's something to be aware of because it can creep in at different points, whether or not you're doing everything, you know, right down the line and perfectly other times, like you, you know, if you hear this particular information, you realize it's going to set you back six months. You got to restart this, that, that, you know? Yeah. So I think that is a, it's an interesting point. And again, I'm not implying that that's anything that you were doing, but uh, just well, for any aspiring I did get that very wrong in my first startup and I, and it is a pretty common mistake that uh, that people make. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, particularly as an entrepreneur, yeah, you kind of have a hunch of a path you want to go down and have a, you can't, yeah. you can't, at least I can have then fairly strong views on what that path should be and just want right. to go sort of, you've got to be a little bit pig-headed about just kind of going for it when a lot of people tell you maybe that's a little bit stupid and risky. So. And some of those elements are important to have as an entrepreneur, but they can also be those strengths can also be a weakness in that yeah. if you're not listening to customers and not understanding the customer and actually deeply understanding consumer behavior, consumer psychology, and what the customer wants, you can miss a lot of things. And some entrepreneurs get lucky and their their hunch is right and can be right in a really big way, but but you can de-risk things a lot. But if you do go and listen to customers, talk to customers, and and yeah, invariably build a more successful business because yeah, it's it's very unlikely you've got it perfectly right. Yeah, yeah. Now that article on medium.com that you did post, I mean, it was you know quite revealing and uh, really helpful, I'm sure, to it to any aspiring entrepreneur to to hear that, you know, to hear some of those lessons that were learned. And getting back to Fable Food right now, I mean, 
this, I assume, is probably top of mind awareness for you from from those lessons that you experienced in, in Choose a Prey. But you did mention that maybe early on or, you know, set you back maybe a year perhaps already. Could you could you share a little bit more about that or is that something that? Yeah, yeah. So we um, we we've been selling into primarily into restaurants. So, yeah, selling out. We have a kind of a pulled shiitake product, which kind of mimics a beef brisket, a pulled beef or a pulled pork, but made out of shiitake mushrooms. And it does really well in like Mexican food or sort of brisket style burgers or Asian mm. food, curries, uh, pastas, bolognese, lasagnas, things like that. We would use kind of slow cooked barbecues, those kind of slow cooked meats. And we thought we had a really good value proposition for those restaurants. And we, but we found we launched into a whole bunch of kind of decent sized ones. And we were having kind of a on and off success rates. Like some restaurants would do really well, some restaurant chains it wouldn't, it would bomb and, and we'd be off the menu. And we kind of like, yeah, why, like why? So we went and what's going on? Yeah. yeah. So we went and did a whole bunch of research. And then what we realized, and it's kind of obvious in hindsight, but, but we just didn't really think about this beforehand. We sort of assumed restaurants would get this right. The menu naming and positioning of our products is really, really critical. So add just as an example, simple example in a burger chain, if you call our product, if you put our product on a burger and call it a mushroom burger, it tends to not sell that well. But if you call it a char grilled shiitake burger, you'll sell three times as many of them as the mushroom right. burger. And it kind of it kind of makes sense. Like char grilled shiitake sounds way more exciting and interesting and delicious than mushroom burger. Yeah. But we kind of assumed that restaurants would know this. And but then what we realized yeah. was they 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 don't look because the plant-based section of their menu is you know five to ten percent of their sales, maybe 15% if they're doing well. And right. it's not a real core cool focus for them. So they don't really understand that plant-based consumer. And actually not many people do. So we realized, okay, we need to, this can, this can have a massive take impact. Take it upon yourselves. Yeah, this can have a massive impact on the success of our product. So we need to step back and go to a bunch of research and insights and understand in all the different cuisine types, what we should be calling the product, how we should be positioning it, what should be the call out? Should it be, should we be using the word vegan or not? Should we be calling out a product's got a good amount of protein? Should we be using protein as a call out or it's also high in fiber? Should we be calling out fiber? And yeah, what are the taste and flavor kind of cues that people want to hear? How important is taste and flavor over, over it being plant-based or over sort of price or over something like a protein call out? So yeah, we went and did all of that sort of research and in, insights and we learned a lot and it's now proving to be super helpful for our performance and success on restaurant menus. And it's also really helpful now to be, we can sort of go in when we're selling into restaurant chains and be experts and help them in this kind of stuff, genuinely help them in these areas, uh, which they appreciate. Yeah, no, I love that point. I think that kind of like draws attention towards some of the points of being an entrepreneur that, you know, maybe aren't as sexy, you know, they're, they're yeah. not the ones that like all the stories are built upon and everything else, but like that is what it's all about ultimately, yeah. right? It's finding those success points, it's finding like those learnings, you know, along the way that can really distinguish between, you know, going this way or this way towards success or towards failure, ultimately. Yeah. And it kind of leads me into this next question here of this idea of just romanticizing of launching and running successful businesses. People love these stories of overcoming long odds and, and, and everything else. But in, in, in a lot of these stories being out there, there's, I think, warped realities of what it means to, to have a business, to have a company. And, you know, from your experiences, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that entrepreneurship does get romanticized a little bit and there's, you know, the books and and posts and things are written about the people who've kind of had like really outlier success and that's a very small percentage of people who might be a 
as talented as a Mark Zuckerberg or a, or, or a Steve Jobs, and have also yeah had some had some elements of luck in coming across the right idea, and then and then having the skill to execute on it really well. Um, and so yeah, you get lots of people, lots of books and things and stories written about those people. But there's thousands of other people who yeah may not have had the same amount of luck or may not have the same uh, skill set as those people. Uh, and or, yeah, it might be in the wrong place at the the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, whatever, just go, yeah, kind of things that don't quite go right. And so, yeah, it's tough. I think most entrepreneurs fail, fail multiple times and may not ever have sort of big success, big outlier success, but the it can be romanticized into being this yeah, really sexy, exciting path. And then mm-hmm. even, even those people who are super successful, it's hard work for them, and and you often read about the personal lives of some of those people who've had uh, uh, outlier success, and yeah, they're not necessarily happy people or aren't not fulfilled in other areas, and yeah, so it's not necessarily this wonderful, amazing, romantic, successful, sipping champagne on private jets sort of lifestyle that it can sometimes be made out to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I think it's, it's really insightful to look at it there, and you know, getting back to your experiences now and, and being reflective on them, some of your past enterprises, some of your past businesses, and then also what you're doing right now. Like, what has this journey come to mean to you? How, like, what balance have you struck to, one, you know, create the successful business or be on the path towards one right now with Fable? And then also, two, I mean, fulfillment within your own life, you know, not being consumed by it and having some balance there. Yeah. So I think if I compare first main business, She's a Prey, and then second one, Fable, um, I think Something that has made me enjoy the experience of Fable much more than Shoes of Prey has been that mission element to it. So when I started Shoes of Prey, we, we did custom women's shoes. So you kind of design your own women's shoes. And I didn't, it was no mission behind it. It was like, okay, it was capitalism at its finest. Here's a what I thought was a gap in the market and a product that could fill that gap. And I didn't have any particular affinity to women's shoes or the fashion industry. I was just like, oh, I think I can make some money here. And so there were still lots of things I enjoyed about doing that, running that business. But, you know, when they're going, I, I wouldn't find myself on weekends kind of reading fashion magazines and I didn't necessarily feel like as part of the fashion yeah. industry because I didn't sort of live and breathe that space. And I think that may have had an an element to then, you know, not necessarily deeply understanding the customer because I wasn't the customer. I think you can deeply understand a customer without being the customer, but I think it makes it a little bit harder. Um, and just yeah living and breathing the space whereas fable i'm i'm vegan and i've gone on that journey of cutting meat out of my diet i i love food i have a vegetable garden that i love spending an hour or two a day in and fruit trees and i love cooking and i i love mushrooms and all sorts of elements of mushrooms and mm. i really kind of live and breathe this space i do do stuff in our related to our industry like i did a soil biology course for fun over the last few months and and so so i i can authentically talk to people in the industry i can authentically talk to chefs and have a really interesting conversation where we learn from each other and i do understand the consumer because uh, i because i kind of am the consumer and yeah it makes a really big difference to how much i enjoy my work day to day and i think gives us to certainly Certainly, it doesn't guarantee success, but I think improves the prob- probability of success uh, because I'm I'm just naturally, authentically living and breathing the space that we're in more than say I was with Shoes of Prey, and so I think it also and it also kind of means I'm enjoying the journey much more. Like I, I literally caught up with yeah. an entrepreneur friend uh, before our chat just now, 
And uh, we were both sort of sharing, like we're both just really enjoying what we're doing now. Like if someone, we kind of just had the thought experiment, if someone came along with $100 million and wanted to buy our businesses tomorrow, we're both like, I mean, of course that would be nice, but actually probably post that, I don't know that I would be enjoying myself as much as I'm enjoying myself now. So it's not necessarily an outcome that I kind of would seek out tomorrow. Maybe I could reflect on that more. I probably could find some things to do that I would enjoy. But, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, like just genuinely loving the day-to-day and enjoying the journey. And uh, I think in anything in life, that's kind of what you what you want. You don't want your day job, what you're doing, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day to be drudgery and boring. You want it to be interesting right. and exciting and kind of want it to be the thing that if you didn't, if you had a choice to do anything in the world, this would probably be in the top few things you'd want to be spending your time on. That, that makes life fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I like that point too. It kind of circles back around to that definition of entrepreneurship and passion Right, you're speaking about. You know, it certainly makes it a lot easier to have that passion for the enterprise to, to kind of dig down deep when you are encountering difficulties or challenges within the business when you are so keyed in on it and, and care so deeply for it. And it's not just tied into the numbers or to like the, the monetary value that it's delivering to you or potentially delivering to you. There's something more meaningful attached exactly. to it all and that, that would help there too, I would guess. hundred percent. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, let's slide into this other segment, a water cooler story segment. And here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their work. So really interested to hear what you have for us today, Michael. Yeah. So there's, um, there's this uh, ethicist and philosopher, Professor Peter Singer. He's, um, he's yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're familiar with him. He wrote a book in yeah. 1974 called Animal Liberation, which laid the philosophical foundation for the vegan movement. Um, he's a Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, um, and, and he's he's actually Australian. And he's yeah, that book kind of was one of the books that kind of tipped me down the path of vegetarianism and veganism. And you know, probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if he'd not written that that book. And so I was watching a couple of years ago. I was watching a an online lecture on YouTube that he was that he'd done, and I just sort of had this moment of gratitude. Went onto his website and just sort of left a comment on his website. Said, "Hey, Professor Singer, thanks for writing that book." Uh, it kind of yeah sent me down this path. I'm now doing this thing, Fable, and yeah wouldn't wouldn't be doing that if he hadn't written that book. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I never expected him to write back, but it's probably six months later he wrote back, and uh, yeah we kind of got just had a little chat over email. And uh, I, yeah, it turns out he was he's based in Melbourne, and we were we run these mushroom foraging tours for chefs, and we were doing them down in Melbourne. So I said, oh, do you want to have you been mushroom foraging before? Would you like to join us mushroom foraging? And he said, oh, my parents are Polish. I grew up mushroom foraging, um, so probably not. Um, but then there's this, there's this some weird Australian mushrooms that we go mushroom foraging for, these cordyceps, which have these give you this sort of energy boost. So I sort of described those and said, have you ever been foraging for cordyceps? And uh, he said, uh, oh, no, I haven't. And so, yeah, so he ended up coming out mushroom foraging with us. Get and, out of here. Um, he, his team actually brought a film crew because they were doing a kind of documentary on his life, so they came and filmed it. And yeah, got to take him out mushroom foraging for the day. And yeah, it was actually an interesting experience because this cordyceps, uh, another element to it, this cordyceps mushroom, um, it's, it's actually a um, parasitic mushroom that kills insects and consumes the body of the insect that it kills and then grows a mushroom. And then you can eat it and it gives, it's got this kind of amazing energy boosting pro- property. So as we're foraging for these mushrooms, I was like, oh crap, I don't actually even know if these mushrooms are technically vegan because they're they <laughs> Right, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. we're eating the yeah. mummified body of this insect. And so I was like, turned to Professor Singer and said, oh, and we had this whole group of people with us, said, oh, Professor Singer, you're the like, you wrote the book on veganism. <laughs> like, you're the vegan yeah. goat. Like, <laughs> what do you think? Are these vegan? And he, uh, he gave a very wise philosopher's answer. He said, well, Michael, 
it depends on why you're vegan. He said, for me, I'm vegan for ethical reasons. And uh, this is a natural process that's killed this caterpillar. We haven't harmed the caterpillar. So he said, just as I would be comfortable eat, eating roadkill from an ethical perspective, maybe not from a food safety perspective, uh, I would be comfortable. Yeah, I'm comfortable eating this caterpillar. But Michael, it depends on why your reasons for being vegan. Uh, these are just mine. So I thought that was a really good, wise answer to a question that had sort of been bugging me in the back of my mind. And um, yeah, I got to have the yeah. uh, the vegan goat answer answer that on a mushroom foraging tour that I had the pleasure of taking him on. And he ended up investing in our business uh, not long not long after. So we now have him as an investor too. So that was a real wow. just a real kind of personal thrill and journey uh, that that I that I went on with the related to the business. Yeah. What a story, man! What a story. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you still have some degree. Well, obviously, he was an investor. You have some degree of relationship as well with him. So just you know yeah are you able to reach out and get perspectives on certain yeah, things yeah totally yeah yeah we, we catch up on email every now and then and uh yeah he's like my uh my uh ethical kind of uh counsel so we're <laughs> doing something i'm not quite sure about the ethics of go and run the question by him because he's got a got a good answer yeah, that one. yeah. it's like yeah. nobody better for that yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah so i love love being able to just ping him on things like that that's really nice yeah yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. We do have one last segment here, a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking towards the future, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And I mean, getting back to the, the, this, well, fable foods in, in general and what it's based off of, you know, food and nutrition, plant-based diets, certainly a lot of the research is pointing that that is better for us. It's better for humans, you know, from a health perspectives. You know, consumer habits, consumer behavior is still, you know, it's evolving. You would certainly know this better than I would, but like just from a cursory glance, it would seem that we're, we're getting closer to it, but yet there still seems to be this divide here. I mean, it's still like mainstream isn't fully adopting this. And presumably a lot of this probably has to do with like market dynamics, cost, product, familiarity, all these different things. But when do you think, I mean, is the, the big crystal ball <laughs> portion of this question, like when do you see these worlds kind of colliding or, or aligning to the point where you know, offerings such as yours become a little bit more mainstream. Yeah, I think the I think the kind of framework to think about this is relatively simple. The the execution is harder. So the 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 way I think about it is um, people buy food on like taste and and meat products. Like taste and texture is number one, and price is a very very close second. And actually, depending on the consumer, sometimes price is more important than taste and texture. Those are by far and away the two most important sort of reasons or parts of pieces of the value proposition for why people buy food. And then for some consumers, uh, health is important. Uh, and then for a smaller number of consumers, sustainability, for a very small number of consumers, uh, ethics. And so the the reasons people want to people the reasons people want to reduce meat consumption, it's it's in that order. It's generally health is the main driver. People say they want to eat sustainably, but it doesn't actually drive much purchasing behavior. Um, and then ethics is ethics is really small. So but taste and texture and price are way, 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 way more important than health and sustainability and ethics. So the meat alternative space is not going to be able to disrupt the meat industry until the products beat meat on taste, texture and price. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much as simple as that. Um, and they've also, they've also got to do well on health. Um, and even then, they've got to meaningfully be better than meat on those points to change consumer behavior and cultural habits and, uh, around meat. Um, and you can see this happening in other industries. So you look at um, electricity generation. So in Australia, um, most of our electricity historically has been generated from coal. 
but we haven't built a coal power plant in the last eight years, not because um, we are being good for the environment, but because now solar power in Australia, we have a lot of sun, solar power is been cheaper than uh, than than coal power for for quite a while now, particularly with the big upfront capital investment uh, for coal. So now all of our new electricity generation is being it's being generated by solar. And as coal power plants age and go offline, they're not being replaced. They're being with coal. They're being replaced mm. with solar. Um, and similar in cars, um, uh, electric cars are starting to become more mainstream and starting to you know, only be probably another five or 10 years and most of the cars we buy will be electric rather than internal combustion engines. And it's not because people want to be good for the environment. It's because they're cheaper, they're faster, they're more efficient to run, they're simpler to run and they're cheaper. So they're they're winning. So electricity generation and car, electric cars are beating the incumbents, coal and internal combustion engines on performance of the product and price. And that's what we need to do in the meat alternative space. Um, so that's that's our objective. That's how we think about the space. We've got to perform better than meat on taste and texture, and we've got to be cheaper than meat on price. And only then, you know, until then, we're going to be serving little niche segments of the market. It's only then that our products are going to be become mainstream. What are you seeing with like different age demographics? Like presumably your younger ones, I, I'm guessing, would be a little bit more open-minded towards these things. It would would have you know some of these things layered differently versus you know an older generation that's probably built on tradition. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of what their, their their food habits are. Yeah, it's interesting. Younger generations are a little bit more driven by sustainability and ethics, but uh, older generations, uh, particularly older males who might be having sort of heart uh, challenges as they get in their 50s, 60s, and 70s um, might be sort of a little bit overweight. Yeah. Might be um, yeah, have some risk of a heart attack. Cholesterol is really high. The doctors are telling them you've got to eat less saturated fat, eat less sodium. Yeah. So they're That's actually really good consumers for meat alternatives because they're trying to cut back on their particularly the saturated fat consumption and eat less eat less meat. So older generations are being driven into the category by health. Younger generations, they are there are segments that are very conscious of their health uh, early on, which is great, um, but maybe a little more by sustainability and maybe a touch more by ethics. Well, I got to say, Michael, I mean, we just blown through this conversation. It's been insightful from start to finish. I really enjoyed it, and I uh, can't thank you enough for all your insights today. It's been uh, it's been a true pleasure. No worries. Thanks so much. No, really happy, really happy to chat. Nice chatting to you, Christopher. Yeah. For those interested in learning more about Michael and his work, you can do so via his company website, Fable Food Company. You can also find them on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and of course, LinkedIn. For reference, all this information, including links, will be included in the show notes. And hey, if you liked today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And then also, as I mentioned off the top, head on over to YouTube, you can check out video highlights of the conversation over there. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.